0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to the HTML All the Things Podcast, episode 93 Cool New Tech. I'm your host, Matt Lawrence, and I'm joined again by my co host, Mike Coran. If you've been enjoying the podcast so far and you want to support us, there are a couple ways that you can do that. You can review us on Apple Podcasts or on the podcast platform that you're listening to this on. What are you laughing at, Mike? I can see you there. I can see you that webcam. I accidentally
1: forgot to change one of the news to the web. What? Remember? Yeah. Cool
0: new. Damn it. Cool, cool new tech. tech. Not cool web. Come Yeah, on, that was but. the it was
1: supposed to be cool new tech, and I changed two of the titles, but I forgot the third one. We really need to have like a script in there where if you change one, it changes all three.
0: I feel like we should get like a, an actual document maker like program. Yeah, instead maybe, of just or like just out. use a
1: macro or something. I'm sure it's doable. Like S- something curious.
0: like that. But yeah. that's okay. like that's like Captain Kirk screwing up the star date. Yep. Come on now. I mean, anyway. Yeah. <clears throat> You can review us on Apple Podcasts, we're on the podcast platform, you're listening to this on, you can also check us out on that Patreon, only a couple of tiers right now, but the 3 dollars two will give you a shout out in the podcast, and we'll share a, we- a link to your website in our show notes, and the most important one is just to tell your friends or anyone else that, uh, you know, that is interested in web development, that we're here, ready to be listened to, and if you or your friends are ready to go a step further, you can come check out our Discord server, which is rapidly growing in this uh, quarantine time, actually, really rapidly growing recently, so come, uh, you know, hang out with us, we're all chatting in there about php and js and ux and all the rest of it so come on down as it were but weekly pain point mike please take it away
1: all right uh so weekly pain point this week a
0: little depressing
1: but uh have a bunny as a pet and he got sick this weekend and he's okay though now so i'm just just to warn everyone everything everything turns out fine but we had to go visit the vet which is a super stressful occasion. I'm sure everyone knows I hate hate going to the vet, just like everyone kind of hates going to the doctors. Um, but, I mean, got through it, kind of ruined the weekend, that's for sure. Weekend kind of is a write-off. It was a tough week, shitty weekend last week, and then now a new week starts again. So kind of got to roll with the punches on this one and hope that this week kind of goes by okay so I can actually have a weekend next week. That's about it. Jesus. What about you, Matt?
0: Uh, so my weekly pain point isn't really a weekly pain point. It's, like, a new obsession. So, if you know me, I get, like, randomly obsessed with things. Um, I don't know whether it... Well, I don't don't know what it is, actually. I was gonna say maybe it's a prestige thing, but, like, that's probably not right. I don't know what it is, actually. But I just randomly get obsessed with some, some random things. Uh, one of them is phone cameras. So, like, that's why I have a real nice phone now. Um, but, like... So now I'm obsessed with audio equipment and specifically I was uh, really, I I, want to upgrade this, this podcast, uh, audio setup. I know our podcast, you know, sounds fine. Uh, at the end of the day, you know, there's no problems. It's not like crackling constantly or, you know, I'm not, I'm not recording. I had a friend one time that recorded by getting a uh, paperclip and he bent it so that it would hold an earbud and he held it in front of the, the laptop's microphone array at the top so that he could record the sound coming out of the speakers. Like, that's how he recorded sound. This is years and years and years ago, like early 2000s. So, like, you know, we're not on a recording setup like that. Um, and there's no, you know, so whatever. And, and and it's like, obviously, we're editing it to make it more balanced and stuff. So, we're not in a bad camp. But I really want to get, like, I'm using this microphone sometimes for 12 hours a day. So, I, I stream video games sometimes. Um, I'm obviously doing phone calls all the time on Skype and like whatever else. Um, I like how I always go to Skype first and I rarely use Skype. But anyway, that's like the de facto thing. It's like Kleenex now. But anyway, so I I use this microphone a lot. And there's been a few days in this quarantine, especially where I've actually used this microphone like 12 hours, go on a web call or go on like a regular call with some clients, go on a a call with my girlfriend. Then I go and I stream. Then we record a podcast later, whatever. So it's like 12 hours. So I'm getting a lot of use out of this and I kind of want to upgrade it. I have a blue Snowball, not the Snowball Ice, the blue Snowball. Mike has a blue Yeti. Used to have the Snowball and it broke, sadly. So, I wanted to massive jump. I wanted to just jump into, like, the Sure SM7B. Or something like that. And the reason why I like that is because, you know, Joe Rogan uses it. Obviously, it's tried, true, tested. I can hear it. I can see it. I can do whatever. I've watched the Jay's Two Cents video on it. I've, like, looked up some stuff about it, whatever. Um, also, for my other podcast, uh, when we're not doing it remotely, so when this quarantine's uh, over, we do it in, like, a you know a proper music setup. So, I've a proper music studio, and we have electro voice microphones. And those are, like, a proper, you know, radio standard and show, you know, for the most part from my research, the Shure SM7B or the Electro Voice are both industry standards, and you can't really go wrong with either, there's pros and cons of either one, of course, etc., 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 so I want to get this, so the way, but the thing is, is, like, this is why I'm questioning whether it's prestige, because, like, we have microphone arms, like, that's what I have here, now, this one I can't move uh, when I'm recording, or you're going to hear it, of course, but I want one of those ones where I can move it around, like the Joe Rogan show, and you can, whatever, uh, those are around you know 500 and, $500 and something dollars. uh, the interface I was looking at is around five sixty six. There might need to be an amp attached to that interface because I'm not sure if it's an amp so that might be up to be like two to three hundred and then the microphone is like five ish hundred now again, these are Canadian dollars, so um you know you might be thinking that's oh, cheaper. well, it maybe in American dollars it is, but here that's approximately how much it is uh, you know I'm sure I could go with a lesser. Uh, microphone arm that I I don't know I don't know if I want to do that it's one of those weird things I get obsessed with some stuff like for example I'm I mentioned it so many times I have a really old car but like I was talking to Mike the other day I think I was talking to you about it and one of the weird features I'm attached to now is I'm like I want OnStar like I don't want to touch the console like that's it like it's it's over
1: it's a now. really weird feature to be attached to I hope you know like but- I, I hope
0: Uh, i I I want to hear from
1: the audience who actually like who would who would choose a car based on the fact that it had onstar that i want to know that at html everything at html things on instagram (laughs) no literally i would love to know who is purchasing a car based on their onstar inclusion (laughs) would love to know maybe i'm wrong i don't know
0: but you know how awesome it's going to be for me to like click get in the car and let's say i don't know where you live for some reason i don't know where you well actually i don't kind of know where you live anymore i couldn't drive there just default so i go in there and i'm like i have mike's let's just say i have mike's house in my gps or in my addresses in onstar however that works i've never used it however that works and i get in the car and i'm not i ain't clicking i ain't clicking one thing i ain't mounting my phone that's it I click the little blue button on my rear view mirror and it goes I like, on thing. Mr. The Lawrence. You no, know, you
1: clicked one thing. You said you're not clicking a single thing. I'm not
0: clicking anything on the dash. I'm clicking that rear view mirror button. I'm going to click that. I'm going to get in the car, click it, on star, Mr. Lawrence. How can we direct you today? Hi, I want to go to Mike's house, saved address or whatever. However that works, never used it before. And then it'll beam it to my car's screen and then I pull out and drive.
1: I'm going to tell I, you right now, it's not going to be as good as you think it is. I prom—I promise you 100% it's not going to be as the, good as you think it is. You can get the version with it's,
0: the Wi-Fi hotspot in the car so I don't use data anymore. I'm transcending to the cellular tower. You
1: have to pay for that per month.
0: And it's also using a cellular tower. But Yes. um,
1: it's the <laughs> same pay- thing.
0: Oh, yeah. It's $60 a month, I think. Something like yeah. that. Um,
1: but I, I hope you do it. Honestly, though... Like. I one hundred percent hope that you that you make your purchasing decision based on OnStar and write like a, a full on UX review about how OnStar has <laughs> changed your life and how every car from now in the future OnStar will be in. And the day after you do that, Onstar will become a derelict company and will I really hope file that's for not bankruptcy the case. and your car will be worthless Well, t- uh,
0: well one th- <laughs> don't, don't say that thing. I'm trying to over talk <laughs> <Yeah>. it. Um, <laughs> one of the things that uh, one of the things that I did that people thought thought I was crazy. In the beginning, is this is all my uh, you know, Google Nest devices? Like I got Google Nest or Google, formerly Google Home devices everywhere uh, in the home. And one of the best things, this is the best thing ever. You walk into a room, like I'm not touching light switches. Like it's it's over, <laughs> it's over. <laughs> That's it. Walk in the room, turn my lights on, and it does it. One of the best things I've ever done. This is this is everyone get ready for a very lackluster to you, but great for me experience. Go into my bedroom, say, turn the lights on, turns the lights on, because it knows contextually where I am. Fantastic, okay? I don't have to say, turn the bedroom lights on, just say, turn the lights on. Because that Nest device in that room heard it, it turns just those lights on. And yes, there's been several incidents where I forgot to assign a room and turned everything off in the house. Just moving on, moving on with our lives. Okay, walk in, turn the lights on, get in, you know, get ready for bed, whatever. Go lay down in bed, set an alarm with my voice, confirm the alarm think, damn, did I turn the light off downstairs? Ask it, hey, did I turn the light on? It's like, or off. It's like, yes, this light is off. I say, okay, turn the light off, meaning, because it's contextual, in the room. Turns the lights off, I go to sleep. I didn't touch a button. I didn't touch a switch. It's all over. It's all over. That's it. I've transcended the button.
1: Whatever makes you happy. I hope hope that that is truly the peak of your happiness. Like, well, I don't know if that's a bad thing to hope for or a good thing. I hope you're happy. That's it. That's
0: <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. I'm gonna end it at that. It's fantastic. And then <clears throat> very, very childish. Very little. I know this is a long pain point. Well, it's not even a pain point. I'm just talking. Uh, in Jay's two cents video, he's a YouTuber. Go check him out. Does computer stuff. He goes and does a little. Uh, I want to say expose, but that's not right. Like a walkthrough of his use case of the Go XLR, which is. Uh, like a music interface thing. Like I'm not fully versed in this. Clearly, I'm just getting into it. But uh, go go check out this Go XLR thing. And one of my favorite features that like sold me like the second it happened was he, there's these sliders for like, you know, you control the volume of different channels and such. And he clicked at the bottom, the mute button, and it moved the slider down to the mute for him. And then it moved, and then he clicks it again and it moves it back to where it was. And I played that clip like back and forth like three, four times. And I was like, Hell yeah! Like I'm not, I'm not sliding that thing. But you're still <laughs> pressing the button. No, but no, but see, I've transcended. <laughs> in that case, I've transcended the slider. Transcended it. Just one one step at a time. There's, there's a reason why I needed a case that I didn't want to have a car mount with all the battery crap, but also does wireless thing. I've tra- I've, tra- I've transcended the the cables. Although I only charge on the wireless charger occasionally because it's very slow. And uh, more or less charged with the cable, but I've attempted, yeah. I've attempted to transcend <laughs> the cable. Also, I use cables in everything else. Like <laughs> I got a cable attached to me right now. So,
1: and yet you have transcended
0: the cables. I've close to, tra- <laughs> close to transcended the cable. Like you know how you get in your car and you got to plug your your thing in. Yes. It's over for me. Like, I'm, Yeah,
1: you can't do that.
0: Yeah. It's over. Like, I'm not doing that. I'm pressing that damn blue button. And I'm having someone call me, like, OnStar, Mr. Lawrence. And I bumped my microphone for everyone to hear, too. See? If we had a new microphone, I could have bumped this, and it wouldn't have made a noise. See that? You hear that? I've transcended the bumpage. <laughs> Watch that some sort of rap song, we're gonna get a fucking flag, like, transcended the bumpage. Or whatever, some crazy thing. <laughs> Fuck. Anyway, um, yeah, I don't really know where to go from here. Uh, I'm, <laughs> let's just let's just
1: go on to the segment. I'm gonna think, leave it. I'm gonna leave it
0: to you, Mike. I'm gonna, yeah. Let's
1: let's start this episode. So, uh, as Matt, Matt wrongly said, this is the cool web tech episode. Uh, that, that's fake start... news,
0: as Mike wrongly scripted. That's fake news.
1: Matt, you, you just read everything like a teleprompter. Just read it like a teleprompter. There's no, there's no, <laughs> there's no logic. Just read it. <laughs> I forgot one of the titles uh but okay segment one cool web tech let's get right into it so the big thing I want to do with this uh with this episode is throw out a lot of technologies at you and kind of go through them not not in depth but enough for you to be able to a understand what they are and b talk about them with other web developers web designers and stuff so that you know what's going on in the world you know what's what's happening uh and you don't feel like you're left behind I just want to kind of inform people of what's out there. And maybe you'll like one of these technologies and then do your own research, watch your own YouTube videos, uh, figure out stuff on your own, integrate it into your current websites because some of these are pretty cool. So first thing here, uh, and I'm sure a lot of you have heard about this one, is called webhooks. Now, a lot of different frameworks, platforms have started implementing these things. Uh, You've heard of React Hooks probably. Vue.js has their own kind of hooks that was already built in right away. Um, but mainly what I'm talking about here is a custom HTTP callback that is triggered by an event. So a callback is something that happens after uh, a function runs. So usually you'll throw a callback in or a promise is, is sometimes the same thing as a callback. Uh, you'll, you'll, you'll initiate another function once something completes. So where this is used is mostly in third-party integrations. So for instance, GitHub uh, has integrations with Netlify, so if you were to push your repository to GitHub, you can set up a webhook that will detect that your repository has been pushed, and automatically start a build on the host Netlify, which will do whatever commands you wanted to do because you can set those commands yourself, and it'll put your website live straight from your GitHub repository. That's a webhook. That's where the that's where the main the main use that I've been using webhooks for is is exactly that, to start launching builds, not only from GitHub, we use Bitbucket for the same thing, and uh, a lot of other front, uh, headless CMSs also use this. So anytime a change is made to the headless CMS, it can initiate a build in Netlify. And this is kind of how you can talk and create a static site, but still have a back-end that can, you, you can do a CMS with. So it it, it really makes stuff really, really powerful for, for people that want a really lightweight site but a really robust back-end CMS. That's a that's the power of webhooks. Now, you can do a lot of other things with, web, with webhooks that I'm not going to be mentioning here because I don't know the intricacies of everything of webhooks. But like I said, it's just one of those things where as long as you hear, you hear it, you know kind of what it is. It'll allow you to, again, research it a little bit more, talk to people about it. Hopefully, it'll help you know what it is and know when to use it. Because again, it, it's a custom HTTP callback that can be triggered by an event. And then it could be used by a third party. It's a way to communicate with third party applications. So your site can communicate with them.
0: I have a, another big example, actually, just to clear it up there for anyone. Um, possibly is IFTTT, for example. So one of the things that we use uh, to pipe our tweets into our Twitter channel on our Discord is actually a webhook using the IFTTT uh, service as well. So you, I did it with a webhook, and then you get a response, and I format the response, and then it posts it into it posted into our Discord, and our Discord. Um, and if you've, if you've edited Discord servers in the past, do have a thing where you go into the server settings and you're able to add webhooks, which are essentially like bots at the end of the day. Uh, but they're like little webhooks and that, you know, there's a Twitter webhook and an Instagram webhook, for example. And I'm also looking at getting uh, a podcast webhook that will pull from our RSS and then just automatically post about the episode.
1: Perfect. That would be actually awesome. Um, next thing here, uh, and I've talked about this a couple of times before, but it's Flutter Web. So we've talked. We've had whole episodes on Flutter. We've had web news talking about Flutter. It's a big thing. It's part of my daily life because I, can, I, I do have a couple apps in Flutter that I'm doing for one of our clients. Uh, but Flutter web is something that we've kind of only touched on. And it's something that's really starting to mature. It's in the process of maturing. I would not call it mature in any way, but it allows the cross-platform framework Flutter, which was meant to build for Android and iOS... Uh, into a kind of a native build, again, using a uh, compiler to build into kind of like a, almost like a game engine type of UI. Um, Not that anything's a game, it's just rendering stuff kind of on a canvas rather than using the custom components and stuff like that, that uh, something like Swift or Kotlin would use. It's, It's rendering into like kind of Unreal Engine sort of infrastructure. It's using that, but then it's also adding a web component to it. So you're allowed to not only build to Android and iOS, and I think it builds to macOS now as well. Uh, you're also allowed to build to the web. So you can create a website using Dart, which is the Flutter language, and build it for web, and then also build it for iOS and also build it for Android. One, one language, one code base, all three major platforms. Um, it's... It's getting to the point where you can kind of recreate very common websites. Like I've seen some people recreate uh, the Apple website with it. I've seen some people recreate uh, a few other big, you know, marketing websites and they look pretty good. The problem is there's still some, there's definitely still some issues. The one, the biggest one is performance. Like I have a pretty powerful computer. It's like eight core, 16 threads. I have like 32 gigs of Ram. Way to flex
0: on everybody, buddy.
1: Yeah. I'm flexing on everyone, but then. When I'm running this like emulated or or a Flutter web packaged iOS or not iOS but uh, Apple.com website that someone made as a demonstration, everything fires up. Like my graphics cards on fire, my processors on fire. It's literally like it's running at maybe 15 FPS. Like all the animations that happen, because the more animations that happen, the, the harder it is on the hard on the processor. Now this is due to not it not being optimized yet. So the optimization is coming. It's not in a final build. I think it's still technically in an alpha, maybe a beta, but it's still very much early. But it is a lot of the features that are there for web are there now. It's just like we're talking optimizations. If they can optimize for performance, we're solid because any web app that you build now that you want to have, first of all, access to a lot of native APIs, because that's what Flutter gives you will now be able to be thrown right into the web as well. So you don't have to build a separate web version as well as an Android and iOS version. Um, Now, technically you could have done that with something like Cordova before, but again, Flutter gives you a little bit more power on the native mobile side. So the iOS and the Android side is a little bit more powerful than something like Cordova would give you, a little bit more to the metal. Next thing here I have is web components. So this is interesting to me because uh, I've only recently, maybe in the last two years, started to use JavaScript frameworks, like a lot, uh, Vue and React, for, for instance. Web Components is actually a native uh, JavaScript HTML functionality that allows you to really recreate a lot of what those frameworks do. And by what I mean is it actually adds a shadow DOM, which means you can manipulate Second, like you can manip- manipulate the DOM without actually changing the DOM. And then when the DOM is manipulated in the shadow realm, as I like to call it, it will automatically, shadow realm. yeah, this shadow realm, it'll automatically, uh, manipulate the actual real DOM. So it allows you to have kind of a separate DOM, uh, that you can screw around with and detect and stuff like that. So that's something that, uh, most frameworks use view and react, especially, uh, I know Svelte doesn't do this. I was mentioning in the Svelte episode, you can check it out. I think it's a few episodes back uh, that Svelte actually doesn't use a shadow dom and because of that it's a lot more lightweight. It's too much but,
0: it's too many shadows. Yeah, there's
1: too much there's too much stuff going on, but regardless web components actually builds the shadow dom right into native html native js which is cool. It also builds in templating syntax which means again you can have a lot of like reactivity in components, you can have, you know, one component be able to build out a bunch of list items or whatever. That's what templating gives you. And because of that, you're able to use the reusable component architecture. So you're able to build out a component kind of separately from your app and then just import it with import statements into your wherever you need to use it in your HTML and your JavaScript and use all the functionality of that component, just like you would with a Vue or React.js component. So it's really interesting to me that this is kind of becoming integrated into native, uh native HTML and C, native HTML and JS, because my question will be a year or two down the line, is there any reason to ever use another framework? Like, should are all these functionalities going to be built into regular JavaScript and HTML so you won't have to download a million libraries? You won't have to rely on any, you know, reliability issues or security issues with all the different NPM packages that you have to install to support the libraries. It's an interesting topic. I think a really good experiment would be, can you recreate most of your functionality that you have in your Vue or React website currently with What's currently available in native JavaScript, Native CSS, Native js. And I bet you ninety nine percent of the conveniences that you have you could probably recreate um, with a little bit of with a little bit of hard work. So next year, I have WebAssembly. Now this is something that I really didn't know anything about until I started to do this the show notes for this episode. Uh, but it was really interesting to me because I had it, like, it just kept popping up for me. Like I would read articles and be like, Oh, and WebAssembly is a thing. And then WebAssembly is a thing. And I'm like, what are they talking about? Like, what is this WebAssembly thing? But apparently it's actually a, f- a language that you're able to access from JavaScript. Now it's not JavaScript, but you're able to access it from a web browser from, uh, like m- all the common browsers, I think all like internet explorer, uh, Edge, at least for sure, Edge, Firefox, Safari, and Chrome all support this.
0: Now, wait, is, sorry, sorry to, to interrupt. Edge or the new Edge built on the Chromium so engine? So
1: both for sure. Okay. Yeah, both the old Edge and the one built on Chromium definitely support WebAssembly. But what it allows you to do is actually write code that's way more to the metal. Now, again, it's a separate coding language. You're not writing JavaScript. You're writing WebAssembly code. So it's a little bit more complex and it's definitely not something you would write to like, you know, power a business card website or even like a, you know, a sophisticated blog site. You're not going to be using WebAssembly to power those websites, but stuff like massive video processing sites, like stuff on on YouTube when you're, you know, uploading a million videos and you have to transcode them in real time, that stuff is most definitely written in WebAssembly because you're writing stuff way more to the metal of the machine that it's encoding on. You're writing stuff that can handle number crunching. That's what it's for. WebAssembly is for handling massive amounts of number crunching all in a line. So if you can give give your site, like if your site has to number crunch a bunch of numbers for whatever reason, if, if it's video processing, if it's um, audio encoding, if it's like if you have to put like a filter on, like if you're doing a guitar pedal kind of thing, that's just a bunch of numbers being crunched. You're taking data and you're getting other data out. That's the stuff the WebAssembly can do, and you can do it in parallel too. So WebAssembly gives you access to a bunch of different parallel, uh, like you can you can put stuff on different cores. You can you can really really up your performance, your raw hard metal performance. That's the point of it. So it was cool to me. Like I don't know if a lot of people are going to use it. Uh, it's not something that I don't think I think I'm going to use anytime soon. But it's definitely something I'm going to keep in the back of my mind, because if I'm going to be doing ever a site that needs a lot of transcoding, a lot of image asset management, maybe a lot of like um, something. Another thing that I could think of it doing is any sort of AI kind of or or machine learning aspects where you just need to crunch a bunch of like, let's say you need to tag a bunch of images and you're just running a a simple function that checks the image, does the exact same calculation on every image and outputs like a, a tag for that image that's something that could probably benefit a lot from something like WebAssembly.
0: Now, I have a question for you. Um, sure. I don't know if you mentioned this and I just missed it, but this is done on the client side or is this done server side? And the reason why I ask is, biggest example in my head comes from if, you, if you're if you trying to convert a file to another type of file, so let's say a, a Word doc to a PDF or a picture to a PDF, There's a lot of those services online that are free where you upload it to them and they say, oh, we'll send you a link to it in five minutes and they'll take the file that you upload and then they'll process it in their data center somewhere, right? And then they'll give it, they'll have a file ready for you and it'll be there for a few days or whatever it is. So are they using something you think like WebAssembly or is this more or less something where that that processing you know, to PDF would actually be done on the client itself. It would take five, 10 minutes or whatever it is. And then since you're getting the metal performance, like that's the, you know, it, it it's only limited by the client itself or is this, is this more server stuff? So I think it's both. I okay. think
1: it is both. I think, I think you can do it on the client. I think the server aspect of it is a lot more appealing. And I think that that is more common to do it on the server side, but I can see it being, Used on the client side, like if you don't have a lot of processing power uh, on your server, like if you're a, just a new startup and you need to do a lot of PDF processing, like you're talking about, like you know, trans converting to PDF or whatever, maybe you do build it on the client side because yes, you're taxing the client a little more, but since you're writing it in WebAssembly, it's going to be a little more efficient, it'll be faster, etc. etc. So I think it, it can be done on both. Um, I'm not 100% sure on that. Please correct me if you're a WebAssembly expert. First of all, I would love to have an episode on WebAssembly if we can find an expert and to to talk to them about it to see where like where they use it how they use it how they see it growing and stuff. And second of all, like uh, it's just a cool topic to to think about because Matt and I actually started our programming like knowledge mostly in assembly. Like we did do some uh, some assembly language a lot like a, quite a bit of it actually in college.
0: Yeah, yeah, it it literally as close to the metal as. We're we're literally reading with voltmeters whether or not a, a pin, meaning a literal like little contact on a on a chip is going high or low. Yeah. That's pretty literally touching the metal, if you will, <laughs> of the pin. <laughs> yeah. Like
1: Exactly. You're seeing if it's a one or a zero, like literally getting down to the binary level on a lot of things. But WebAssembly is a way for us to maybe delve into that a little bit more. Like maybe we can re you know, reengage our talents and go into a little bit more WebAssembly. And I'm sure there's quite a bit of work to be done in there because a lot of people need to get more performance out of, you know, struggling hardware. So definitely an interesting topic that I want to explore some more, but I just wanted to put it out there again so that you guys know about it, so that you hear it a few times and then you can discuss it with someone and expand your knowledge and maybe their knowledge. Uh, So next thing here is API first development. Now, this isn't really a a tech, it's more of a method that's been coming up a lot more often. And the concept of it is instead of building everything in parallel, which is kind of what we've been doing, like building the UI for your front end, the UI for your back end, the data stuff for your back end, all the endpoints, building all that out. Instead of doing all that at the same time, what API first development is, is a deliberate approach to build the back end and the API endpoints first. So get your data in order. Get your, you know, your Node.js server up and running, get your MongoDB install up in order, and get and then get your API all up and running, all the way you want it to be, and then give it to your front end team and be like, here's my API, here's what it generates, build a front end that talks to it. And build a front end that uses it to the best capacity. Let me know if I need to change anything a little bit, but this is what you have to deal with. And what that gives you is the UI is very much is essentially focused. On the data it receives, instead of being disconnected, a lot of the times you look at a website and you can tell when a when a website is disconnected from its backend. It just doesn't match. Like, why is this? Why are these articles here and these articles over there? Why is there like 15 different filters to get down to the exact same articles that you're seeing on the front page? That those kind of things are a disconnect between the front end and the back end. This sort of development infrastructure, the API-first development method. Will help alleviate those kinds of problems. Now, the negative of it is it's definitely slower because you can't do those things in parallel anymore. But you can argue that what you're what you're kind of losing in the speed of being able to do parallel, you're gaining in the deliberate implementation of the UI on the front end after you get that back end done. Um, I'm a big proponent of API first development. I do something I I like to call data first development, where I actually focus more than anything on the JSON infrastructure. On the API call, I focus on that first. Like, what's the what is the data going to look like? I don't care about the back end so much. I don't care about the front end, but what is the data going to look like? And from that, I can start a seeing what the back end is going to look like, and I can start seeing what the front end is going to look like. And I don't. The, once you have that data there, you can build whichever one first, whichever one you want, because then you can build them both in parallel. Maybe then you can build, um, you know, you, you kind of stop. You kind of stop the approach of. Uh, only building the backend in that case. That's why I like data-first data development, but not everyone uh, agrees with that, but regardless. Next thing here is web-based IDEs. So these are cool. Um, these are kind of like things that are starting to pop up more, more and more common. So VS Code, uh, one of the popular IDE code editors, is going ha, to have an online version. I believe they already have one that you can test out on in beta, But it's going to be coming out to the mass market soon, where you'll be able to kind of log into your Microsoft account and go to your VS Code instance as a web app and be able to code all online. So all your files will be synced up to the server, et cetera, et cetera. I can see a lot of positive, this kind of thing. Uh, GitHub also has one that they're working on. I can't remember exactly what it's called. They have their own name for it, but it's essentially VS Code, like one-to-one VS Code with all of its extensions and stuff like that, only on GitHub site tied to your GitHub account, like directly to your all your, all your repos and stuff like that. And the cool thing about the GitHub implementation is that let's say you're working on solving issues for other people's open source projects like a lot of people do that in their off time to to learn a lot of new skills and to help out the open source community you don't have to pull their project into your own repo you can literally go into their project and then open it inside of i like the web app and start coding immediately just change a couple things you know push your push your changes directly from the website and be on your way. You don't have to download any dependencies on your computer that you're never going to use again. You don't have to worry about keeping your environment the same as the person that's coding that environment. You just use the the thing that's actually meant to be used inside of GitHub. I see a lot of power in this. Um, I think the other thing that it, it opens up to is like really low-powered laptops being able to do very, very high-level and, and low-level development work. Chromebooks... Chromebooks, yep. Uh, Windows X, I think, is coming out where it's going to be very, very much app-driven infrastructure. It's probably going to fail because they all Windows do. Windows 10X, like yeah. All, yeah, Windows 10X is probably going to fail um, because Windows has tried this many times and they failed every single time. Uh, but we'll see. Uh, so, for, But stuff like this kind of helps it because the more web apps you have, the more stuff that you can do in the browser that looks and feels like a native application... The better chance that kind of system has, where you can't use the you know first party, x86 apps. Next thing I have here, is uh, j- sorry it, to interrupt you. Yeah, there. go ahead. I just
0: wanted go to ahead. mention uh, because it's kind of both uh, web IDE and API first development. So when you were talking about API first development, and then also. Uh, also, what, what, you, what did you call it? Your method? Data, data.
1: Data first. Yeah.
0: So the first thing actually came to mind was, uh, I was doing this earlier today, was a little bit of Webflow development. So it's web-based, which is why I wanted to wait for the both, both of them to come out. And you're not coding. You're kind of visually coding, as I've mentioned over and over again. I'm not going to get into that. But what I've noticed is I was going in, and you can go into Webflow, and you can make individual pages. and then there's also CMS items and all the CMS items are, you make a CMS collection and then you can link those together or whatever. And then the CMS items. So for example, your collection could be a blog and then your items inside of your thing would be uh, your blog posts, but then you can link them together. So you can have another CMS collection could be your blog categories, your blog tags, and you can like link those two together. And I was looking at. Uh, making a drop-down list and uh, in in a customer site, and I was thinking like, wow, I could really I could make it so that this customer lit or this uh, this drop-down list is actually uh, formulated from from like these CMS items, and you could have a bunch of different pages point to it. But what Webflow seems to do, and I never really thought of it until you mentioned this, is it is very much you're developing them both in parallel. But the way it's put together is it helps you to not have so much redundancy with those filters and such. And the reason why that is, is because I'm thinking to myself, well, I have to, I have this dropdown list. I just populated it manually. And then I can't have like half manual, half whatever, because that would just look weird. So it's like, okay, I have to think about this. Okay. This whole list that I just put together, which at the moment is placeholder, I have to delete this and replace it with data driven actual stuff in the CMS. And that and the way that Webflow put is is put together and the way I organize myself in the Webflow interface, which is all done on the browser by the way, is very indicative, it's very indicative of this API first development. Is it's sort of similar in that way where I have to think of okay, I need I need another collection here, I'll pull this data from the collection. This collection will pull from this other collection. There's like nested collection lists now and stuff like this. So I have to really think about where to do it. I can't have like two pages that are you know, redundant, like I could, but I would have to go out of my way to actually make them redundant and make them kind of weird. I'd make one and be like, why would I need another in terms of how I put things together in Webflow? So I think that, I think that, 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 that's interesting that maybe that's sort of why Webflow doesn't, we've talked about this before, doesn't have some of the features that we, you know, we're expecting. And maybe it's because they're looking for a, a stripped down procedure where, Sites aren't filled to the brim with a million and one f- uh, features of with like filters and tags and everything else. Like you can add those things, but it's very deliberate. Oh, I added this. Now there's a page automatically associated with it. Now I got all these other pages associated with each item. Now I need to work on this, you know, and short of me screwing up or misunderstanding how Webflow works. It's very like, oh, I made a blog tag called, you know, uh, what's a good, uh, food, you know, I tagged my blog post with food. Now there's a food blog. There's a food like page already set up for me. It's more than likely blank. Right. But it's just sitting there. Now it's ready for me to go. So I'm not going to go and make a redundant page. I'm going to use the one that's automatically made. And then that'll be a template for all the other ones. So when I add more tags, like nature and whatever else now they're already made. And so it's, it's very data driven.
1: Yeah, exactly. And that's, I think that's the way to go. Um, just because it gives your front end so much more of a cleaner look. Like if you're giving... If you tell your front end, hey, just design something that will, you know, house a blog. That's so open-ended. Oh, yeah. They're going to put like a million filters. Like, hey, is this blog going to have a million different so, like options? You're going to have this, this, and this, and this. And then when they get the data, they're like, well, this doesn't really fit. So I'm going to have to kind of pseudo make it fit. And it's going to be... it's I don't know. It's just... It's, in my opinion, not the right way to go about it. I think data is much more complicated and the much more... It, you should take your time developing the data that your website is going to be displaying because th- that's what's going to determine how it's going to work. That's going to determine the UX of it, the biggest biggest point, the UI, everything. is going to be determined by the data that it's going to be displaying. So you're absolutely right. Yeah, 100%. So next thing here is AI-powered chatbots. So this, this is becoming more and more popular. If you go on a website and there's a little live chat bubble at the bottom right corner, that's the typical place where they are, and you click on it, The first thing that you interact with is usually not a person anymore. Like it used to be where you would click on it and immediately be like, Hey, this is Jennifer. You, I'm answering your question now. Um, no, the first thing is, is now it's a bot where it'll do a couple things. It will attempt to parse your question and give you commonly answered, commonly like a FAQ kind of style answers. So if you have something like you're asking about account management It'll give you all the account management answers it could find for you and be like, hey, are these any, any of these going to fit your needs? And if it can answer your question, that's great because now they've cut out a person from answering questions. So they don't have to hire as many people. Second thing that it can do for you is it can organize your questions into different categories and give the person a little bit of an advantage in solving your question because they don't have to go in and pull out information from you right off the get go. They can. They already know your question. They already know what category your question in. So if you're like again account management, so you're trying to reactivate your account or something, um, then you've already stated that to the bot, and the bot can then relay that information to the right person that manages the accounts, and that person can then go in and talk to the person one on one and answer the question for them or whatever, resolve the issue. So I think it. When used correctly, and that's a big, big asterisk when used correctly, because it can be used incorrectly. Uh, I think it can be a huge benefit to people, especially small startups that just can't hire a massive support team. And also to the users, because if it's able to answer your question without you having to talk to another person, because sometimes that is possible. I've had that happen. Not often. Usually I do end up having to talk to a person, but a few times where it directed me to, uh, you know, an FAQ document where that actually was my problem. Uh, it actually alleviated the whole reason for me to talk to someone and it, it saved me time as well. So if, if implemented correctly, it's a cool thing. And there's a lot of technologies out there that do implement AI powered chatbots. Now you would definitely have to set them up yourself. Again, it's kind of like uh Slack chatbots, like Slack bots, Discord bots. You have to feed it a bunch of information, like you know, if and when state like stuff like that. Um, but once you set it up, it's kind of like a one and done thing because as soon as you set it up, it's already working for you. And you can update it as you go and stuff like that, as more questions get asked the same questions, you can update it with the answers, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. So I think it makes sense, especially for small startups. Um, and I'd like to see where it goes, like if it can become even more intelligent and automatically pick up that people are asking the same questions and then prompt you to fill out the answers. I wonder if that if that's a thing. It'd be interesting.
0: And, and to be fair with you, you're more tech savvy. So you would have already looked for the FAQ and stuff like that. And that's why it's solved so few of your issues where yeah. when someone isn't tech savvy or completely new to the service, then they'll... I'm sure it it has actually like averted quite a few tech support calls and saved quite a bit of money in, in tech support.
1: 100%. Like turn on, turn your computer off and on every time. Oh yeah. White windows. Yeah.
0: I, I, the IT crowd. Hello, hello IT. Mm-hmm. if you tried turning it off and on again? <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
1: exactly. Um, so next thing here is motion UI I've talked about motion UI a couple times, I think on the show, just briefly. And I'm going to talk about it briefly again, because I haven't had time to really go into it, but essentially it's a animations framework for the web. And it allows you to power your website with a bunch of different kinds of animations uh, based on scrolling, based on whatever you kind of want and different, different kinds of animations, different styles, like sliding in and out, you know, doing a bunch of different things. And it's extremely smooth animation styles. Um, if you go on Apple.com and you like, you know, you start scrolling, you see all those animations coming in and fading in, and all the text coming in and changing. Um, I don't know if that's powered by Motion UI, but that's what Motion UI is trying to do. So it allows you to kind of express your website in a different way. I think animations are a pretty big, especially for a product page. Uh, or like a launch page for your site. I think it's a pretty big thing that you can utilize, especially if you'd only do a little bit of it to you know draw attention to different points, uh, to tell a story, stuff like that. So cool thing, check it out, called Motion UI. I have the link in the show notes. Next thing here is voice search. This one is really interesting and I'm surprised hasn't been utilized more. But what essentially allows you to do is use the web speech API, which is built in again to, uh, to JavaScript. Uh, to create commands that allow a user to use their voice with voice recognition to, you know, either search your site or actually navigate your site or whatever. So again, with Matt's, you know, Matt loves his uh, smart homes thing. The next step for him would be to go on like YouTube. And instead of, you know, typing in his, uh, his video, he would just be like, okay, YouTube, uh, can you please, you know. Put up HTML things podcasts and start playing them. And I have kind right of done website. this
0: with the Google Nest Hub.
1: No, of course. Yeah. On apps oh, and stuff, man. you can you can do that. But now imagine if you could do that right from your browser, which you might be able to actually. I'm not sure. I know um, I think search has it, right? Like Google search has a little.
0: Yes, I believe that's true. Yep. And U-
1: YouTube might. Yes, for sure has it. Yes. So YouTube probably does have it. But like imagine like a random website.
0: Or even, and, or even and... not having to press the. The microphone necessarily, like even just having a hotkey on the keyboard where I can just enter the website and just be like, search this up. And then it just pulls up the latest, you know, video podcast that I watch or something.
1: Exactly. Maybe like even on Facebook, like you're just on Facebook and you want to talk to someone. You're like, hey, start chatting with whoever. Just say their name.
0: I'm going to transcend web UI.
1: Exactly. Web UI. Transcend web UI. (laughs) Go on a game site and start searching for games without uh, having to type anything in. Perfect. Start navigating the page with just words. Again, there's a kind like, of a double benefit to this because accessibility becomes a huge thing. If you're designing websites to be used by voice, then you're helping people with visual disabilities. Yeah, like people that can't see. So that's a double benefit.
0: Or help or um, people who so, have trouble using the mouse.
1: Yeah, absolutely, exactly. So it's it, it could be a big big benefit. Um, next thing here is web monetization, and uh, Matt and I have talked about this a little bit. But it's a it's a new topic that is kind of being slowly integrated into websites. And it, it is interesting to me because essentially the current web format is you're monetizing with ads. Like most sites are monetized with ads or with monetized with like being a membership site or monetized with uh I don't even like sponsorships or a product. You're selling a product on a website, it could be monetized with that as well. Web monetization allows micropayments to come into play for monetizing a simple like news website or a blog website or a podcast website, whatever. Uh, You can start implementing things called micropayments. And these micropayments can kind of interact with your website in different ways. So what one, one thing you can do is you can have exclusive content for people that have submitted a micropayment. So if you've submitted $3 this month, then you're allowed to access this kind of like these three articles that we wrote this month that we're going to release next month, but you're allowed to access them early. So exclusive early access content. Um, you're maybe a micropayment will allow you to remove ads on the website. So usually you'll have Google ads or whatever, like sponsorship ads. But if you submit a $3 a month micropayment, uh, you're allowed to, you know, remove all the ads, your UI will quickly adapt to that and stuff like that. So you'll have no ads on your website. Um, It's an interesting concept uh, for people that want to support their local, like the creator that they like. Uh, I don't think it's anything that's going to revolutionize the, you know, the the web industry because not everyone's going to be paying for it, for sure. It's going to be a very niche thing, kind of like Patreon. Uh, I could see it kind of working in that same way. You get some benefits, but the benefits are small and it's mostly you're just helping out more than anything rather than paying for a product. Because it is a micropayment.
0: You know where I could see this uh, coming out? Maybe it will be a little more niche like Patreon. But I can see this possibly being used um, as platforms seem to tick off influencers. So as as we see, influencers obviously are very influential, as as their title uh, suggests. And as a result, they'll if they really hate X platform that they're on... They might just leave and go to their own website or something. Now, certainly there's going to be a popularity drop there to an extent, but I mean, very controversially, we have Alex Jones going to his own InfoWars and he's still doing his thing. As far as I've heard, I don't really hear much about him anymore. Uh, but like we see info, like, I-, I don't know, I don't follow him, but like, uh, you know, platforms kicked him off. Um, maybe people just want to leave the platform on their own choice, whatever they do, they could review plants for all I care. And, you know, they might just be like, the hell with twitter or something i don't know what the hell with twitter i'm sick of this i'm getting out of here and if they have a big enough and enough dedicated um, audience they might leave or you know it could it could be something where it they still stay on twitter they maybe they're not ticked off of twitter but they want to start something so you see a lot of these influencers especially if they're how-to uh cook cooking channels will sell cooking supplies will sell cooking uh they're pots their pans those type of things maybe they'll sell ingredient packets per month Uh, maybe they'll be they'll they'll be uh you know sponsored by blue apron or something so you know the 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 idea of being only quote-unquote stuck or only present on a platform is i think not going away by, by any means but it certainly is not it certainly isn't the only future like some would entail, and I think that we're going to see more and more people branch out their own websites. They'll look for a way to monetize, and devs that are have their ear to the ground that want something that I've seen a, a couple, or one, just one, I should say, web monetization implementation really easy looks like to monetize for you know pay us x amount, we'll knock the ads off for a month or like whatever. So I I can see this type of thing becoming maybe still niche. But used enough where it's not going anywhere, basically. Absolutely.
1: So I, I, I could I could see it being being a pretty a pretty interesting option to monetize your website rather than just have ads. Yes. That's a thing. Like I we just want to get away from one only one way of monetizing.
0: Because in right, in a, in a way you're on a platform on the there too. If Google kicks you yeah. off for, because you're suspected of doing something or you accidentally break the terms of use or something happens, in, in a way even though it is your website, certainly you could still publish your content, but your monetization channel is gone, and that that's one exactly. of the reasons why people really really like the idea of a newsletter and those type of things because it just makes sense to have that. Yeah. Um,
1: but with that, I think we're gonna move. We should move on to the next segment. Uh, we've been we've been going pretty pretty long here, uh, but. Next segment here is our wish list. So I think I'm going to let you Matt start this off cuz you have a f- quite a few wish list items here.
0: Yeah, so now my wish list I want to just preface this with I've never actually looked into this much. Uh, myself, it's just pure UX from my experience, and I don't do this every day. So you know, if there is a solution out there, please let please let me know on social. But my thing comes from the smart home again, and that is I want. I'll just read the point here: a smooth integration of Google Nest within Home, meaning Google Home, the app, and uh, and some sort of web portal to also manage that, and adding quote unquote skills. That's the Alexa term for that, but skills uh, to Nest. The reason why I say that is because there are essentially skills or apps that you can add to your Google home to allow it to do other things to your Google nest, to allow it to do other things, check a certain, uh, check a certain horoscope or something like that. You can add those things, but I just, I just feel like it's not very well. Um, like that particular feature just seems hidden to me. If you ask me right now, where that is, I can't tell you. It's just, it's something like the play store to me where it should just be in my face and whether they actually list these skills in my play store because google knows whether or not i have nest devices because i have to sign in they should be they should almost have a nest section or they should uh you know have it be more prominent in the home app or allow me to monitor it like one of the ma- one of the major things that i wanted for a long time was a a google uh at the time a google home where i could physically hit the button. So there's been times where I had a sore throat or something and I couldn't yell and I just wanted to shut off my smart light and I would have to I mean first of all problems but I have to go over and click the button on the smart switch, but I would prefer just why isn't there a visual control? Or sometimes it's just nice to have a visual control so that Google Home or now Google Nest Hub uh, allows me to change the brightness of things and have a slider there. And sometimes it's just more natural to reach out with my hand That's that, that type of thing. But I I just feel like the Google home app has brought that stuff together and Android thing like alongside Android things and everything. So I'm allowed to, you know, quote unquote, flip switches from my phone, flip switches from my uh, Nest hub with the screen, flip switches with my voice from just like a Nest mini, for example, but I'm not able to easily find these skills. Um, I find that the, the Amazon implementation of skills just seems to be a little bit more in your face. It seems to be a little bit more like, "Hey, add these skills." And there's been times where I say, "Like, man, I would, I would love to just be able to check on the price of something," and I just can't necessarily do it from there. And 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 like, I I want to check on it from a certain manufacturer, like a certain, I, I you know, I want to know what uh, Canada Computers has. Um, for, as a price for this thing, I want to know the Canada computer deals or something like that. And I would love for skills or whenever, whatever Google calls on these apps or whatever that you add to your Google nest. I would love to have that just be more prominent, more there, but have a web presence too. I think that because it's, it's, it's the home. One of the things I'll just say is with the nest homes and with your phone, you have the Google assistant everywhere. But if, if you don't have a Chromebook, you don't have the Google assistant with you. You know, why isn't it that I can't go on my computer, you know, on Chrome or edge powered by Chromium? And why can't I have the Google assistant right there with all the skills or whatever they call them at it? I just, I don't understand why It's just, it just seems like there's a hole there and a big one was patched with the home app that was reworked a while ago and stuff like that. So, you know, cheers for that essentially. But I would just love for it to be this one prominent like Google drive. I look at Google Drive on my phone. I look at it on my iPad over there, on this laptop over here. I'm literally looking at it on my computer right now, all over the place. I can look at Google Drive everywhere, and I would just love to have that be something with more web presence. I think.
1: Okay. Uh, yeah, that makes that makes perfect sense. There's a lot. There's a lot to unpack there, but um, I definitely agree that there should be a more universal standard for being able to change all those things. Like it shouldn't be just locked down to a few different things and it shouldn't be hidden away either.
0: Well, the main, the main thing too is like, for example, like the economist, um, the economist has a, has an app called like espresso or whatever. Right. That's like them. It's a subscription service and it's supposed to be like, you wake up, you read this espresso app. It has like all the major headlines, news and all the rest of it. It's like a little, you know, while you drink your espresso kind of, you know, whatever deal I would love for something like that from my Google nest. I like reading mobile syrup, for example, and, you know, and gadget stuff like that. So I would love to have, I have the, if I say like, you know, what's my day look like? It'll play the N gadget little soundbite of they, they make these little like hourly podcasts or whatever. It'll play the news or the CBC and stuff like that. it will play those for me as well, but I would love just to have a reflection in voice or I guess in sound, I would say like, Hey, can you check the, you know, the last three N gadget articles for me? and it just has an api somewhere and it just pulls it and it says like the latest three or this this and this do you want to do you want to hear the story or something more along the lines of do you want me to send article 1 2 or 3 to your phone and then i could just pull it up right there i think or to my um my my browser like it just makes it just makes sense to me and it just it just seems like a hole there yeah
1: a ro- robust smart things API, maybe that it can be integrated to any website. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, um, possibly with RSS. Like, again, like I said, there might be skills for this. I haven't done like extensive research. Uh, there might be skills for this. And maybe some people have gotten it working, but it isn't in my face. All the light switches and all the rest of it are right in my face. I see them. I know they're right there. I just feel like this stuff needs to be brought up to the, the foreground and be more consumerized. It needs to be thrown in my face. I need to see it. I need. I, I want to see it in Google Play in the Google play store. I think if I have a nest device, I should be able to see it in the Google play store. That's just my, that's just my opinion on that. Okay. uh, Moving on to one of mine
1: here. And these wishlist items are kind of what we want. Tech, the technology, cool web tech. Like we want more cool web tech. These are the things that we would want added. So one big thing for me is easy browser testing on one platform. So right now what you have to do is, you know, open up Chrome, open up, Firefox, open up Edge, old Edge, probably more than new Edge. Uh, open up whatever, Opera, Internet Explorer, open up all your Safari, like all your browsers, Safari as well, and start testing in there. I just wish there was a platform, like a native platform built built into web technologies, like a JavaScript or whatever, that w- would be able to test on all platforms for me, including Safari if I'm on a Linux or a Windows machine would be awesome because that'll essentially make it so that I don't have to buy a MacBook to be able to test Safari. That's the big thing for me. And it'll also increase my workflow because I don't have to open up all the different browsers and do the safer tests. I would rather like write a command that will open up all the browsers for me, do the same test without me having to, you know, completely write a script from scratch, if that makes sense. Uh, I just want a native command for that, that will be like a one-liner and that's it. Um, Like test on all browsers, whatever. Uh so that's one thing that I want. Um the other thing is true cross-platform app development framework from all first party sources. Now this one is I would say an impossible one, it'll never happen, but this is a wish list, so why not throw it in there? It's sort of like uh, an
0: extension of the first as well.
1: Yes. exactly. A big extension though. <laughs> I, I just want you know, I do want like cross-platform support for everything because I wanna be I want to have the choice to use whatever platform I want. Right now I don't. Right. That's my problem. Is like if I want to be able to continue to support my the iOS apps that I'm building, even though they're cross-platform, like they're technically built on web technologies, I'm building them on, I can build them on anything, but I can't test them or package them on a Windows machine because I need an iOS machine to be able to package and test and fiddle around with the the all the different library frameworks and stuff like that. Like I can't do that unless I have an iOS machine. I could try to do it with like a... A VM, but it, it's crappy, crappy UX. I've tried it. Um, so I would love for like for them all to come together, be you know homies with each other, and all of a sudden have one first party source to be able to build for the web, for iOS and for Android, and you know great performance. Obviously, all the to the metal uh, API support, all that stuff. I know it's not going to happen, but I'm going to throw it out there. Maybe you know. The universe hears it and something will happen, but whatever. I'm just throwing it out there.
0: Windows terminal is sort of a step in that direction, a very technical, not consumerized, non-visual step, but it still is a step in that direction. I'd say myself, and I have tested Safari actually from my windows machine, but it was through a VM. Uh, So a a remote VM. I remember when we were first starting out, we were looking at how do we test Safari and ended up the best way to do It's just to get some Apple devices um classic eh? but uh i did i would think i was able to spin up safari 5 or something on a vm for free and i was able to use it for like an hour a month or something like that years ago now but i was able to test some stuff on there uh so maybe vms are the answer there uh for your first one and like for your second one i mean i think i think they're both like i said hand in hand i think when one comes the other one will come with it probably the the testing would need to be together. And then once they see the holes in it, they'll start getting that all together. And then probably there'll be some sort of initiative from that. That makes that people, everyone want to spin up their own, uh, you know, they'll spin up one conglomerated language, if you will. So. Um, I also had a second one actually here, and that is um, better mobile, I almost missing here, better mobile emulation uh, in dev tools slash uh, browser so what I want to see is something more like uh, pinch to zoom I want to see gestures pinch to zoom I want to pretend to have multiple fingers stuff like that I just want it to be better I know there's some some solutions out there but something more right there for me to use I use the uh, chromium or the chrome dev tools quite a bit now uh, so I want to I want to I want to just want it there. I know you can click and see like what it, what it'll look like on the iPhone five or something like that because based on resolution, but I want to see what will happen if I pinch to zoom, because if you're, if you'd use like a lot of, if you do a lot of CSS, a lot of UI testing, you know that when you zoom, some elements stay the same and then just the text zooms and it looks all weird and everything else. And you know that some people, you know, you, maybe your, your user case or your, um, Your demographic is older and they might try to be zooming so they could see it better and then it'll be all awkward. You won't be, you know what I mean? So, you know, the list goes on. I think more almost native testing kind of along the lines of Mike's stuff. I want something like that. Also device frames. Um, This is more or less just visual, but I, I wouldn't mind having a device frame. Seeing something on the device itself really can help. Like maybe you made all your borders all black. And then you pull up an iPad and it just looks dumb. It just looks, you know, it just doesn't look right. It's not what you wanted in presentation to the user because the iPad's screen, the frame is is black in most instances. And so you're like, damn, that looks dumb. And so I, I think that that's important is I, I want to see that presentation. I want to see what it looks like. And it's the same with, um, it's the same with, uh, landscape versus portrait especially on a device. So most people don't hold their device landscape. And if you do hold it landscape on browsers, it's not great. Oftentimes, Uh, you know, it's pretty pinched up and stuff like that, especially if there's a sticky footer or a sticky, um, maybe not a sticky footer, but like a a sticky nav bar, it just takes up too much space, that type of thing. But I think that it would be more apparent as to what needs to be fixed, or whether you should discourage the use of landscape device if you actually had the device frame. I just think that the device frame even though it's just a picture for the most part, it just helps with that presentation there. It really does. If Mike and I were presenting something, some multi-million dollar idea to an investor for iPhone, and it, let's say it were cross-platform, we would certainly buy that iPhone that we that was our demographic. I wouldn't be saying, well, we tested it on, on my Note 10 at the, you know, however, we tested it on my Note 10 Plus on the on the at the iPhone's resolution, this is what it should look like. Like, no, 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 no. We'll be buying that fricking iPhone and getting that full package presentation because that is important. And there's little intricacies. Uh, there's little intricacies that you will only get from the hardware forever. But I think some of it can be emulated and device frames is one of them. And
1: I, I shouldn't I have think, to edit a photo in there either. I think another one is device performance emulation would be cool. So oh, like yeah. if, yep. you, if you select uh, iPhone 5, it should limit the performance of your computer or the, the, that specific frame to iPhone 5 performance or approximate that. So you can test on slower hardware. I know you can do network limiting, like you can you know test on a 2G network, 3G network, but I want to see actual hardware limiting as well, just to be able to test on low power devices.
0: Yeah, uh, that'd be cool. I know you can do... Uh, some network testing that like you can limit your yep. network in the browser, which is nice. Um, and I have done that and been like, whoa, that's way, way, way too slow. And so I have you know, compressed some more images and such like that. Absolutely. I've uh, changed some preloaders and pre-animation loaders, if you will, and all the rest of it. I've absolutely changed it because of that. But you're right. Having the actual hardware of the device where you know it's str- it itself is struggling to render something you know, that's a big thing. Like, should we preload this? I don't know, you know, because <laughs> my, you know, my computer can load this page, no problem. And then you get to the actual iPhone and you're like, it's having problems. We should probably have preloaded this and it'd been nice to know this in the beginning. So, absolutely.
1: Yeah, but I think I think that's it. That kind of wraps up our uh, our cool web tech segments. Uh, let's move on to web news. Now, I, I will pre-warn that I only have a little bit of time here, probably like around 20 minutes, so let's try to...
0: Yeah, I well, this web news, I think, is actually going to be a pre-phase to an episode. There's a lot to talk cool. about with this topic, so I think we're going to be talking about it. So we'll cut this short, appro- appropriately, to your time, too, because I have to leave myself. It's almost 8 p.m. here. Uh, and then, um, yeah, so I'm just going to get into it. So web news, ecosystems. Now, we've talked about ecosystems before. Ecosystem, what I mean by that is the ecosystem of your of whatever service you're using. So Microsoft's ecosystem is you sign in with a Microsoft account. You can do that on your Xbox, on your Edge browser to log into your computer with it runs Windows 10. You can use it for your email. You can use it for blah 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 blah. List goes on. Game pass, OneDrive uh, whatever, right? There's your ecosystem. And then ecosystems also include hardware. So you can have the you know, surface, you can have windows loaded on third-party hardware, uh, stuff that you've built yourself. So I got a Lenovo Legion to my right here. That's like third-party hardware. Obviously Lenovo built that, but it's running the Microsoft, like windows 10. So then I'm able to use the Microsoft ecosystem on here, stuff like that. Google's ecosystem. I'm able to have Chrome on my computer, but I'm also able to have my Android phone, which is right in front of me. But that's built by by Samsung, which has its own ecosystem. So ecosystems get complicated, is why I did that big rant. So, what I wanted to talk about more specifically, and and I think we'll do a big ecosystem episode in the future because I've been doing a lot of UX stuff with this, is my recent uh, migration from Chrome, Google Chrome, to Edge. Now, I'm a big Microsoft guy. I sign into Microsoft, I buy, I have almost all their services, I have Xbox Live, I have Xbox Game Pass, I have, I have Microsoft 365, I use my, I use Outlook for my email, like Outlook.com, I've always used Windows, I have Windows on all my computers, I have Windows 7, Windows 8, Windows, like, whatever, and it was 10, across everything, I was looking at a Windows phone back in the day, like, I am Windows... All, all the way through. And if window and if Microsoft came out, I have a, a Samsung tablet running Windows 10 for Pete's sake, over like right over there. Uh, the, like it, it's everywhere. I use a lot of Microsoft stuff. I got my Xbox back there. I got my 360 right below there. Microsoft. So if Microsoft releases a solution, I go for it. And that's what happened here. Was I was using Google Chrome, and I use Google stuff, right? So here's an ecosystem intersection, which is why this is a particularly interesting thing to me. Google is a search engine. Google is obviously a search uh, a service provider. Google Drive, Gmail, the whole bit of it. Also, my ho- my smart home ecosystem, right? It's something that Microsoft doesn't have. I have my you know Google Nest right there. I got a new Nest Mini over there. Google Nest Hub upstairs. Like the whole bit, the whole shebang, right? So, when I went and went to the new Edge, which runs on Chromium, I had a really smooth experience. I went. It was on my. It was on my Legion. Uh, my Lenovo Legion my main laptop here and I literally just imported my stuff I imported my history I imported all my re- all the rest of it imported my uh, bookmarks imported all the rest of it and then I was able to sign in now with uh, Google now like into Google like the my Gmail and stuff like that so I'm still able to use their services now there's this weird intersection here. Google like I said is a search engine as we all know but Bing is also an intersection. Microsoft rewards you for using Bing. Microsoft rewards is integrated into windows. You can see it. It's also an integrated into my Xbox. There's an app for it. It's also integrated wherever, like it's everywhere, right? Microsoft rewards you for using their services and doing all the rest of it. You can go in and take a look at this stuff like this. And I actually have a friend who uses Microsoft rewards to pay for game pass. And they got a, f- a few free months of game pass. So you're getting rewarded for using their ecosystem And then there's also this Google ecosystem thing. So what I want to break down at the end of the day here is what I want to break down is Chrome versus Chromium Edge. And I want to talk about specifically, and I guess I'll bring you, Mike, into this because you're big into the Google thing as well. But I want to talk about two things. One thing is when somebody jumps ship per se, now some might say I jump ship, I jump ship from Google Chrome to, to Edge. What do you bring along with you? Some people don't bring anything and they just start with this clean slate, clean Microsoft account, or at least my existing Microsoft account, but I've never, haven't used edge really that much in the past. And they just use that. And then they build up their, their bookmarks and their history and everything else. Again, they're syncing and everything else. And also to, a second thing is, is what type of things are vital to you? So for example, like I said, I brought over my history and everything onto my, uh, my Legion went over and made sure all my devices were upgraded to the new edge. And then turn the sync on, only to find out that syncing history isn't compatible yet. So we have this weird problem. And then, on top of that, I have Edge on my phone. It's an Android phone. But it's also a Samsung phone. And it runs the Microsoft launcher. So this is why we're going to do a full episode on this. Because this is... i got to write out a script and write all this down. Like This is such an intersection of stuff. But I want to focus on, what do you bring over... And like, do you do, do a clean slate when you, when you start over, uh, or like when you jump ship, when you change services, how long does it take you to do it? That type of stuff. And then the second one is just going to be like a general, I think a, just a general discussion on what, what can you live with and what can't, what can't, what can't you live with? And you can choose a couple of example services, for example, Mike, cause that's a big question and kind of go with it from there.
1: Okay. Uh, so yeah. Migrations from one, like, let's, let's take browsers as an example. Uh, for me, I've tried to migrate a few times to different browsers. I've tried the Microsoft Edge browser, both the pre Chromium and current Chromium. I've tried Firefox migration, and I've tried Brave browser migration all recently, all three. It always comes down to me that I've I rely so much on the history with Chrome which is something I didn't, I never thought that would happen because I just don't even pay attention to it. But right now I do. I type in like one or two letters into my URL bar and it brings up everything that I need right there. That's what Chrome does for me. When I go to a different platform, regardless of whichever one it is, that's not there. Almost everything else can be transferred, including passwords and stuff, which is cool. Um, which was another big thing for me is like all my passwords are saved in Chrome as well as a different third-party password manager. But regardless, like I use Chrome autofill a lot. But that that's kind of been elevated now because I believe in Edge, the new Edge, you the passwords transfer no problem. Uh, they, they for sure transferred in Brave. And everything else is kind of there. Bookmarks obviously sync no problem. Like that's not even an issue Um the look and feel is fine. Everything else is fine. It's just that history. It's just that like one little thing that I haven't been able to get around. And I I constantly go back. I constantly like, okay, I'm going to try it. I'm going to try it. And then it doesn't work. It's just like, it's not that it doesn't work. It's just, I can't handle it. It's a weird thing, but I just, I can't <laughs> handle losing my history. Now, what
0: about, what about um, in my case? So I've imported everything, the full import, mm-hmm. whatever that thing was. It took me through it, the full import into edge chromium. On my laptop, on my Legion, Lenovo Legion, and they, and it, it has my history, but my history is not currently syncing, which is which sucks. And now, however, here's your caveat: your browser history is not syncing, but if you're searching things in Google, that is history that gets saved, because it will yes. remember your old searches via your Google account. See how see so, how it gets complicated now, right? Yes. So that's the thing, like.
1: I searched specifically in the address bar. All my searching is done in the address bar of the browser. So that top bar. Um, If Edge Chromium, because I haven't tried, I haven't given it a real good chance. Like I really just tried it once when it was in beta or alpha, whatever. Like when it first came out, I was like, oh, I'll try it. Uh, When I tried it that first time, it didn't, that didn't transfer for me in the address bar. Right. Like the history wasn't there. Um, you're right. If I go to google.com and I start typing all my histories there, that transfers over no problem. The other thing for me is I use multiple Google accounts in my Chrome browser. And when I go to switch between those accounts in other browsers, for some reason, it's just not as smooth as it is on Chrome. Is that something that you've tried? Just curious, like, have you tried using multiple Google accounts in the new Edge browser? No.
0: So I'm, I'm just looking here because uh, I'm I'm on Edge. And uh, so I'm actually signed in as my Microsoft account. Now, if I click on my little, because this is in the browser part, right? So in Google, my cookies and whatever, they're, uh, you know, I'm signed in as, as myself, my Google account, my personal one. Um, in my actual browser, I'm signed in as uh, my Microsoft account with sync on. But there's also an option here um, is browse as guest, and then there's also which is actually kind of nice. I didn't realize that. And then um, add a profile, and it says to sign into Microsoft Edge with an additional email account. Add a profile, and so I would assume that would do that. One one of the major advantages is I I mean I use Windows 10 Mail now uh, because I f- believe it's matured to an extent and I like it now. But um, if I just go to outlook.com, I'm already signed in, which is super nice. Uh, cause I use that's my main email, and sometimes I want to do something on the on the web version, especially like manage a bunch of OneDrive files that aren't synced. So that's super nice, and I believe that is because I'm signed into the actual browser itself, to Edge itself, as my Microsoft account. But I wonder if I add a profile, and this is something I can check in the future and report back. Is um, if I add a profile, I wonder if I could have another Google account because I do know. That if I go to google.ca, so I'm just going to go right there right now, and I click on my Google account, um, there's like the little, like in the top right, not in the browser, but in the actual uh, google.ca, like the webpage, it, it does say that I can add another account right there. So there, there's a disconnect there to, to, to clarify for people. So in Google Chrome, okay, in Google Chrome, the browser, you sign in, okay, to Google Chrome itself or vice versa and they sync up. So if I sign into Google, into my personal Google account, The browser is also signed in as my Google account, however that works. I did this years ago, so I I might be messing that up a little bit. But you can sign into my Google, my personal Google account in the actual browser in Google Chrome, the program itself, sign in there. And then I can also click the little drop down or the the three dots overflow, whatever it is, and I can switch that profile. But alternatively, I can switch the profile. And I don't know how this works on Chrome because I don't use multiple things, but I can click my little picture in the actual web page, Google.ca, the web page, Okay not the application and i can look at my different accounts there so i think that might work for you mike
1: that's probably something that would work for me that's something that i could probably get around like i'm trying to right now like if you're hearing the 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 typing is me actually going into my uh new chrome like the the edge chrome
0: edge chromium yep
1: edge chromium and checking it out um and uh, one thing I, I did notice is I'm, I'm still using Bing as my setting. So I'm going to tra- change my.
0: Which, by the way, I, I tried to Google Bing because I wanted the rewards. Yeah. Oh, it's um, I'm not going to use Bing again.
1: No. No, it's trash. Like Bing is bad. I'm sorry. Like it's Microsoft. They know that though. But, they know uh, it's bad.
0: Now maybe it's because Google has so much more information on us because like I have my nests and everything else, so like it knows so, so much do, more about us. But how do I change my search? I I don't want you know what I don't want to
1: do this on. Li- but live you can the do air, it. So- it's very easy. Yeah, it's very easy. Yeah. Search. If I just search, search. Be- yeah. Okay, I got. Yeah. it. Okay. Uh, Facebook. Wait, it won't even. Okay. Anyway, I have to add Chrome or uh, add Google to to the search
0: engine. Mine. Anyway, mine wasn't. That's fine. I, mine was just there. I would just select it. Yeah, no. uh, not there by default
1: for whatever reason. Weird. So basically the migration for me is, was a pain point. I might try it again. Now that you've mentioned it, maybe I will try it just, just for like, I, I have no problem with Chrome. Um, the other thing is like dev tools is a big part of it. I don't know if I'm going to be able to use edge De- dev tools. Oh, oh it, it, the it's, it's, seam-
0: it's seamless. It's identical. It's, it's right? good. Like I, I honestly, oh, yeah, completely, I, I completely forget the not, not exaggerate. I completely forget. I'm using edge was the time. Okay. Having cool. used Chrome so, for years. It,
1: it even it even has my same theme settings, which is interesting. That's the same theme that I have for the dev tools. I have a dark theme set up.
0: Oh yeah. Um it brought it it brought in my uh it brought in my extensions. It installed yeah. them. And then it also like some of them I had to like activate and like, you know, majigger with a bit. But on yeah. my so this isn't synced the actual layout itself isn't synced on my desktop. Um but the layout well, actually it might be. Uh, but the layout synced exactly – no, yes, okay, I, I see what's going on here. So I have on my – on Chrome, I have like a, a bookmarks bar set up, uh, and it'll like have like mobile syrup and stuff like that, so I can just click them. Um, when I did the import into uh, into my Legion, it like actually made that bar, and it did like – it did the full layout and everything for me. Yeah. So it was almost like as if I was still using Chrome. Now, on on this desktop, I don't have that for some reason. It did sync bookmarks. I'm not sure whether maybe just the bookmarks bar doesn't. Maybe I have to toggle it on or something like that. You have to toggle it on. Most but likely, like, yeah. like whatever. Like I didn't even notice it till right now. So yeah. So
1: anyway, that that's one thing. The big thing for me is I'm I'm not in I'm not into being only on one ecosystem at this point. Like I don't see myself just being on Google or just being on Microsoft. Like I'm using Microsoft and Google very intertwined like they're constantly being used together a lot mm. um i'm also using like ios like apple i'm also using that constantly intertwined with everything else uh, i'm just trying to think of like i use dropbox as a file sharing app as well like with uh, for other things i'm not loyal to any of them at this point um i would love to have one that just does everything perfectly and everyone uses it you know what i mean like so i don't have to go and jump between a million different applications that's a whole other topic but like that is part of it I would love to have one thing that does everything well, um, but the problems that that could cause with the uh, competition, like not having competition in the in the field with, with no one, like everyone's being stagmented, no one's providing new features. I'd rather just be using a million different applications than just be have one application that never adds new features that runs well, but it has no incentive to do anything different. Right now, with the fact that we have a million ecosystems it allows competition to take the front center. So whoever does it best, that's who I'm going to. And that's how I'm going to play it probably forever until I mean until someone like buys a monopoly or something like that happens, which I don't know if that's ever gonna happen. So that that's my stance on ecosystems, I think, right now. Um, I'm willing to try anything else. Like I said, I'm probably gonna try Edge Chrome now, Chromium. Mm-hmm. Uh, just because you mentioned it, it looks it's just an interesting thing to try. Like, it can can my like if I get my history across, like, because you said you can get the history, if I can get that across uh, and import it, it just I doesn't think sync. solve all I mean, my I don't problems. Worry, I, don't, I don't really care if it syncs or not too much. Yeah. The only thing that it will that will bother me is not syncing to my phone, right? Um, and it, do, it, so and it, it doesn't sync yet.
0: Edge. It literally says like there's a toggle and it just says this isn't available yet. Oh really? yes.
1: There is a t- So eventually it'll sync to your Chrome. Yeah, so
0: like there's a there's a few there's a few not 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 to your Chrome, but um there's like to there's what? like so if I click on sync right now, for example, I have oh. I have favorites, settings, addresses and more and passwords all syncing, which I I yeah. actually have no passwords. Um yeah. but then it says history, open tabs, extensions and collections, all of them are marked as uh well, coming soon. We'll turn it on as soon as it's ready. Oh, collections is ready. I just have, don't have it on. So the ones that are coming soon are history, open tabs, and extensions. Oh, so god damn. I'm gonna to turn on these collections. Good lord. Right?
1: You're talking about syncing to your phone's Chrome. Chrome like, yeah, or, syncing, uh, across, Chrome, syncing across all edges. All edges. Okay, yeah. So that, that's a big one for me. I would want it to sync for sure across my laptop and my computer. So, um,
0: yeah, I don't
1: know. So I don't know if I'm going to do it now. Well, I I, I, I moved
0: it. over uh, in one night. I just decided one day I imported yeah. into the one. And I was like, when I go, I did it onto my uh, laptop. And then uh, when I went the next day and started using my desktop, I was like, I'm just going to use Edge from now on. And that was it. I just signed in, turned on sync. Yeah. And then that was it. I mean, everything, everything looks good. Like everything
1: look, seems to work fine. But I just, I don't have the incentive. You know what I mean? Like I just, I need
0: to have that little bit of extra the collections like, Why are super nice. am I doing The it? collections are super nice. What is the so a collection is so sort for of example like a collection is if you it, it's sort of like bookmark ish um but it, you can create a collection of like uh, their their example in one of their in one of the Microsoft presentations the more recent ones was one person was like a foodie and she added all the collections of like oh this is this recipe this is this food article this is this 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 so she has a food collection stores it all there now it syncs across everything including the device so you could go in it's kind of like list by design in a way. Uh, one of the browser extensions Mike and I made was you go in you create all your food stuff so you could literally let's say you're on your desktop throw them all into your collection go to bed you like to read in bed have your phone now tablet whatever read right there and it's all just synced and then you're able to you know do whatever with the collections it's super it, it is super nice i haven't I haven't started using it it's not part of my workflow uh, but it is something that is on the agenda because I don't I've stopped bookmarking because they're a mess so
1: so I, I mean I can understand that like bookmarks are an antiquated system. It needed a revamp. If collections does help that, then that's that is actually like a good positive. Mm-hmm. Um, I know there's a lot of extensions that can help with that, but it's not the same as having a native build of it, like a native implementation, because that'll be updated and you know uh, supported for longer, most likely. Um, but yeah, I don't know. Like I'll I'll think about it. How about that? Like I'll I'll think about switching just just as an experiment, more than anything at this point because i'm still again satisfied with uh with chrome for the most edge
0: part. or edge mobile is is fantastic um so in chrome i don't know if you remember a while ago they had the the they did an update where they split it so the top had the url bar and some other stuff and then they had the bottom bar which had like your tabs and your search button and stuff and then they got rid of that and you were able to actually turn that back on which i do have turned on in my uh, mobile version of Chrome, via some sort of flag, like I went into the Chrome flags and like tr- toggled it on, because they they literally toggled it on for everybody. People complained, and then they toggled it off for everybody. It was very quick. Uh, but I love having that bottom bar, and Edge has that. Edge, if I open up Edge right now, it has my little uh, thing on the left for my account where I'm signed in. It has my search box there, has a refresh button. This is all at the top. Then at the bottom, if it has go go back go forward it has dot 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 which is overflow for all the rest of it there's a bunch of tools and such in there and then there's also tabs and then share so i can just share right from the bottom and that's huge on a big screen like note 10 plus is like a big thing obviously big screen to reach to the top that is huge and it's massive and edge is edge is great on the phone and 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 i am being more like you as well to an extent i'm kind of leaning more toward I'm, i'm very strict with my ecosystems to an extent um But I am noticing I'm being a little bit more like you in terms of I like having, I don't like having multiple services, but I'm allowing them into my life. Like I used to miss out on something sometimes because it's like, well, it's not a part of this thing. I'll wait for it to, you know, join the family of of this ecosystem. Like, oh, Microsoft is working on this service. I'll just wait. But I don't do that anymore. I will use multiple things. But when somebody comes up with a usable product, so for me, I didn't really like the original edge. This is this edge. So Now I've quote unquote archived google chrome out of my library out of my use case for my daily life and i now use this i went so far as to i have a variety of uh, progressive web apps installed on my desktop here like my messages like for my uh, google messages for my android like sms and rcs and uh, i actually went so far as to uninstall that pwa because it was using the chrome and then i reinstalled it on edge chromium like i went that far because i just don't want is there any difference no Okay, now there's way. one small there's one small difference I've noticed on edge mobile versus uh, Chrome mobile and it's and I have for whatever reason I have trouble making things full screen. I don't know what the heck it is, uh, but I have trouble making videos uh, videos full screen. So I had to embed a few YouTube videos uh, for a client and I went in and I thought maybe there was something wrong with the embed. Because I was trying to make them full screen in Edge on my phone as I was testing them, and it didn't work. But then I tried it in Chrome, and it did work. Now I don't know whether that's just a fluke or something like that. Video is still playing and stuff, so it's not a huge deal. That's really the only hiccup I've found so far. Uh, hopefully, this, hopefully the other syncing options like the history and such actually come in soon. But I mean, if you have this, if you have like your Google account, I really don't see any reason. I mean, unless you really love using the Omnibox at the top of Chrome. I really don't think it's much of a problem. Like I, I mean, I'm old, but I actually search via going, I literally go google.ca and then I search in there. So I don't know. Yeah. I
1: don't, I don't do that. I, I only use the Omnibox. So like,
0: so maybe that's why unless, it doesn't affect my workflow as much.
1: Yeah. That's probably it. Like that's, it's definitely it. Um, But I've got to, I've got to get going here
0: yeah i think
1: again like i'd
0: like to do this conversation at length with like a script and like some other stuff that because we need to actually like as we've already said like this is intricate like how many how many services (laughs) two or three services already just we're talking about edge chromium imagine all the rest of the stuff that we're all signed into so yeah so a a whole episode i think is warranted um but uh, yeah, so I'm just gonna run the old conclusion then. So uh, thank you for listening and make sure you don't miss an episode by subscribing on the platform of your choice. You can follow us on the socials via at HTML All the Things, that's on Facebook and Instagram. You can also follow us on Twitter via at HTML Everything, we're on Medium and we're on GitHub, and we are also on that Patreon, that's patreon.com slash HTML the things. Check out the tiers and give that a go. And many thanks to our three dollar tier patron, Sean from RabbitWorks JavaScript. Find him at youtube.com slash rabbitworks JavaScript. Garrick from Local Path Computing and Web Design find him at localpathcomputing.com. Craig A.K.A. Cosworth, Ryan Gatchel from Blue Black Digital. Find him at blueblackdigital.com. Chris from Self Made Web Designer. Find him at selfmadewebdesigner.com. Tim from the Web Hacker. Find him at thewebhacker.com. And D.L. Ford from dlford.io. Feel free to leave a comment or a review on the platform that you're listening to this on, and we are signing off.